A handful of years ago, my wife and I went to this competition at the George R. Brown Convention Center. Uh, and so we journeyed there. It was actually a competition that her cousin was a coach for the team that was involved in this competition. And so I don't know what you have in your head of what was happening at this competition. Maybe you're like, oh, it's, t- it's probably like a volleyball game, or maybe it was a basketball game. Maybe he's even a cheerleading coach. Maybe that's kind of weird, but maybe he's a cheerleading coach. I don't know what kind of competition you're picturing in your head, but you would be wrong three times over because it was a robotics competition. Yeah, so we, we, like, we, we go and journey to this, this competition, and you get there, and there's this whole floor. I mean, like, it is a robotics competition, and I don't know what you have in your head. Don't think like Robot Wars, like you wake up at 2 a.m., and you're watching TV, and it's like robots with a saw and a hammer. It's not that kind of deal, not that kind of robotics competition, but it is a robotics competition that he's a coach for these high school students that built this robot with their hands. And they're going to participate in this competition. And so he brings us in and takes us to like the pit area where like all these different booths are for all the different teams and all the different robots, whatever. We get to see all this stuff. And then we separate and we're going to go up into the stands. And listen, so I grew up playing sports and I'm not trying to hit on you if you build robots. You're putting stuff on the moon and you'll rule the world one day. I understand. But I just like the bar of expectation for what was about to happen was very low. I just like, I didn't know, like, we're going to go sit in the stands. Like, what do you do at a robotics competition? Do you clap? Like, do you take notes? Like, well, how does this work? Like, I'm not sure how to do this. And so my wife and I are sitting there, again, with a pretty low bar of expectation for this experience. And the way that the competition is going to work is, particularly for that year, these robots had to interact with these basketballs and get them in containers. It sounds like a game that you know, right? And so they had to get these basketballs in these containers. The more balls that they got in, the more points they got, and the more points they got, they would win that match. But there was also this part of the competition floor for each robot. It was kind of a 1v1 deal. Where the driver, there was literally a driver with a remote control operating this robot, a teenage driver. Uh, And so you could get on this thing. It was a lot like a seesaw. And if you could balance the, the board, the robot on this board without tipping one side or the other, and it could sit there for, I don't know, maybe a certain number of seconds, you would get a certain number of bonus points. Like it was a, it was a big deal. And so you would, we would watch these robots put these balls in this container and try to get up on this seesaw. And something happened to my wife and I. We had like this out-of-body experience. We went from sitting in the stands of this robotics competition with a very low bar of expectation for what was happening to watching this competition happen before us and watching these teenage kids give everything they had to get this robot on this little seesaw. As we're watching it creep up, we're like, oh my gosh, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And we're starting to feel this like angst rising in us. And so it goes from in our seats. We're now standing up as this kid puts a robot on a seesaw and he bounces like, yes, we, he's done it. He's done it. He's won. I mean, like it was this unbelievable experience of what was happening. I don't know if you've ever found yourself cheering at a robotics competition, but I have. Check it off the list. Been there and done that. And it was this unbelievable moment of the reality being far better than we could imagine for our expectation. I want to tell you that. Because I think oftentimes when it comes to our understanding of God, the bar of expectation for our experience is really low. Maybe because of ignorance, maybe because we have an incomplete assumption, maybe because we have an incorrect assumption. But the truth of what I hope you see today in the scriptures is that the reality of who God is is far better than you and I can imagine. Far better than you and I can imagine. 
And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be in this series called Better Than, looking at just that, how God is better than we can imagine. Certain aspects of who God is that maybe we have incorrect or incomplete or maybe we're ignorant of, he's just better than we imagine. And so this week, we will look at how God's fatherhood is better than we imagine. And I know right off the bat, that's a problem for some of you. And what's more than that is everybody carries an assumption about what God is like as a father because all of us in some way, have had a father. But again, some of us carry issue with this understanding of God as a father. Why is that? Because we see what God is like as a father through our experience of our earthly fathers. We see what God is like as a father through our experience of our earthly fathers. And so it might be worth pausing in this moment and just catching your attentions, dads, to look at me. We experience what God is like as a father through our experience of our earthly fathers. And if you're thinking, okay, that's a whole lot of pressure. That feels like a lot of weight. You bet. I'm a dad. And for better or for worse, I'm shaping my kid's picture of what God is like as a father as I walk as a father before them. So your role day to day matters a whole lot more than you might think. And we experience God as a father through our experience of our earthly fathers. And so for some of you, your earthly father was absent. He was physically absent or emotionally absent or otherwise. And so as a result, you think, you think God is just this cosmic whatever in the sky who spun the world into motion, stepped back and wants nothing to do with you because the dad that you experienced on earth wanted nothing to do with you. And so you just assume that God as a father wants nothing to do with you. For others of you, you experienced an abusive father. Maybe he was physically or emotionally or otherwise abusive to you. And so when you think about God being a father, you really want nothing to do with that because, because the father that you knew on earth harmed you. And so you shove God away and keep him at a distance because you don't want to get hurt again. And maybe for others of you, you experienced, your experience with your earthly father was one where you never were quite sure if he loved you. You were never quite sure if you had his blessing, you were never quite sure if he was proud of you. You caught glimpses of it along the way. When you performed really well, when you did something really good, you got the pat on the back, maybe you got even a hug or I love you. And so what you did in your brain is you equated, when I perform, my dad gives me what I long for. And so what you did dangerously is you put that onto God. And you assumed that when I perform for him, he will love me like I long to be loved. Because this picture of your earthly father is shaping how we understand God as a father. Maybe for others of you, your dad was your buddy. You guys just palled around. You went fishing together. You went to whatever. You went to the monster truck, whatever. I don't know. He was just your buddy. You were friends. He could have been, maybe he was the best man in your wedding. I don't know how that went in your life. But the problem with that is, is you will minimize God to a buddy and he will be somebody you pal around with, but he will certainly not be somebody you bow down to worship as holy. And maybe for others of you, your dad was awesome. I mean, he was like, he was as close to Jesus being incarnate a second time than you could imagine. He was just unbelievable. But here's the, here's the here's reality. No matter what your experience of your earthly father is, God is just not a better version of your earthly father. He's the perfect version of your earthly father. I have a friend who says it like this. God is not your father improved. He is your father perfected, perfected. So good, bad, or ugly, 
God is a far better father than you can imagine. Far better father than you can imagine. And I think that we'll see that as we look at Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. If you're able to stand, I would invite you to stand as we read the words of God together. We'll read Luke 15, 11 through 31. At the end of our reading, we say this phrase, the very words, just as a means to separate God's perfect words from mine that are not. This is what the word of God says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he, drew, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can be seated. So it might be helpful just to grab some of the context of what's going on here in these verses. And you can actually see it if you back up to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. We're, to, we're drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes, those are religious leaders of the day, they grumbled. They were frustrated. So you can just kind of audibly hear a grumble amongst them. They grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so whatever's about to happen in the verses that follow, it's a response to that statement. Jesus is going to respond to that statement. This man, Jesus, you receive sinners and you eat with them. You say you're the Messiah. You say you're the son of God. You say that you're, you're a good rabbi, but you receive sinners and you eat with them. How can it be that you are from God? And so Jesus is going to launch into some teaching to respond to these Pharisees and scribes' misunderstanding of what God is like, particularly that God receives sinners and he eats with them. He brings them into this intimate moment. He lets them draw near to him. And so he's going to respond to this teaching. He's going to do so with a parable. That's what it says in verse three. So he, that's Jesus, told them this parable and he launches into three different parables with the exact same message. That's the first one you know as the parable of the lost sheep. The second one you know as the parable of the lost coin. And then he launches into this parable 
this story of three sons. And so it launches in, in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So what happens? This younger son goes to his dad and he's like, hey dad, can you give me the share of property that's coming to me? Yeah, that stuff that you're supposed to give me when you die. I know that you're alive right now. Fine, whatever. We'll, we'll forget that for this moment. That stuff that you're supposed to give me when you die. Can you give that to me right now? I mean, how would you respond if your son was like, hey, you know the inheritance that you're giving, you're, you're like collecting for me when you're going to die one day? Can I go ahead and get that now? It's like, I'm sorry, do what? And this is that moment. So I don't know how you would respond. Just like go to your room or you get a spanking. I don't know how you would respond to that moment. But look how the father responds. He says, and he, that's the father, divided his property between them. He obliges. He gives it to him. And so verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So a few days later, he's finally gotten the division of the land that is for him and the vision of the property that's for him, this inheritance that would have been coming to him. He's gathered it all, collected it, packed everything up. And it's like, deuces, dad. And he rolls out and he goes to a distant land, the scriptures say. And it says that he squanders it in reckless living. None of you squander, right? I know that you never use that word, but he just blows it. He wastes it. He burns it. In the most reckless way, you imagine it. He's probably done it. And he's just throwing money away in a way that is not honoring to his father or the family that raised him. And maybe for some of you, you identify immediately with the younger son. You know what it's like to go to a distant land and to live recklessly on all kinds of things in all kinds of places in a way that wasn't honoring to your father or the family that raised you. And so what happens? Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed Pigs. Okay, so here's what happens. He's got money. He's got a lot of money, but he goes and squanders it on reckless living, and he becomes bankrupt as it goes. And so a severe famine rolls in. So not only is he empty-pocketed, but now he's empty-handed because there's no food around. And he, he's in desperate need. That's what, this is what the scriptures say, that he began to be in need. So what does he do? In a, in a moment of desperation, he goes and hires himself out to a farmer, and the farmer says, yeah, sure, you can come work for me. Why don't you go feed the pigs? Which is understood through scholars, for a young Jewish boy, this is shameful. And again, maybe for some of you, you identify with the younger son, and you went to a distant land, and you lived recklessly, and you limp in today, as somebody who is in need. And, and you find yourself, maybe, maybe you've even linked yourself to, tried to attach yourself to somebody to bail you out, and you did it in maybe a shameful way. 
And maybe you find yourself a lot like the younger son does in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He has gone to such a desperate place that he is not just making some money with this pig farmer. He's saying, I am so hungry, I am so desperate that I will eat what they are eating, these unclean animals that it would be a shame for me to even interact with. I'll eat what they eat. Maybe some of you find yourself in that desperate place today. Having gone to a distant land, and as others have said before me, you stayed longer than you wanted to stay. It cost you more than you wanted to pay. Because this is what sin does to us. And you identify really quickly with the younger son. Verse 17. But when he, that's the younger son, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what happens? He gets to this moment of desperation, to the bottom of the bottom, and the scriptures say that he comes to himself. And maybe for some of you, you limped in today because something happened in you that the Bible would describe as you came to yourself. And you limped in today hoping to find something from God around the people of God, from, this people, from these people who preach the word of God, hoping, hoping that you could get something. And you might think that you just resolved it in you, but I'm just telling you it's the spirit of God drawing you in. But when he comes to himself, this picture of repentance, what does he resolve? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? How, what, he, he has this moment, this epiphany. I'm here hungry. Why can't I just go home to dad? I could just go home. To, he's got servants that are eating better than I am. So I'll just go back to dad. And for some of you, you're like, I would never do that. And again, because you are viewing God as a father through the picture of your earthly father. What would it be like? How would your dad respond if you were the kid who went and squandered your property in reckless living and you turned around to come home? What would dad's reaction be to you? And so as a result, in your sin, in your brokenness, with the wake of destruction around you, when people say, turn around, turn to the Father, turn around, turn to the Father, you're like, I'm never going to do that. Because my earthly dad would have met me with the rod of discipline. My earthly dad would have met me with the hands of rejection. My earthly dad would, have, would not have even welcomed me. So I have no interest in turning around to the Father. Based on what I've done, based on where I've gone, I'm not going to do any of that. And so we see here the younger son's misunderstanding. He resolves something good. He's going to say to his father, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's correct. That's, that's exactly what he's done. He should go to his father and say, I've sinned against heaven and before you. What I've done to you, what I've done to our family, it is wrong. But his misunderstanding gets exposed in verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what's the misunderstanding? The first misunderstanding that we have of the father, we see here from the younger son, is this. That the father moves toward those who earn it and sends away those that blow it. The father moves toward those that earn it and sends away those that blow it. He thinks, he thinks my failures will keep me from being deserving of welcome by my father. 
My failures will keep me from being deserving of being welcomed by my Father. And again, some of you carry that exact same assumption about God. It is your baggage, the wake of destruction around you and behind you, your failures that you think will keep you from being deserving of welcome by the Father. And as a result, you live with the same results as the younger son does here in verse 19. He resolves, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here's the result of living with that misunderstanding, that the Father moves toward those that earn it, but he sends away those that blow it. Here's, here's the two results of that. The first one is you will live in shame. You will resolve just like the younger son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You will live in that shame, but it doesn't sound like that. You won't say to God, you won't say to God, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You will say it a lot like this. I, 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 can't, I can't talk to God right now. I've done too much. I've gone too far. It's the same thing. It's the hundredth time, the thousandth time, the millionth time. And so what you will do is you'll just resolve to live in your shame. This is as good as it gets for me because I've just gone too far. I've done too much. I'm way too dirty for God to welcome me back in. And you'll live with that lie. And some of you are living with that lie. And the second thing that you will do is you will expect slavery. Look at the back half of verse 19. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the back half says this, treat me as one of your hired servants. So not only is he going to live in the shame of, I can't be your son anymore, dad, but I'm just going to expect the best that I could get from you is slavery. And again, for us, it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like treat me as one of your hired servants. It sounds like this when you come to God. God, I'm going to show you that I'm serious this time. I'll I'll do it. I'll prove to you, God. I'll get up at 5 a.m. I'll read the whole Bible every day. I'll do whatever. I will show you, God, that I'm serious this time. I'm going to prove to you that I am not who I think that I am. I'm not the busted up, messed up, sinful person that I think that I am, God. I'm gonna show you this time. And what you do is you get on this treadmill of spiritual slavery because that's that's what you expect. And maybe that's because of how you interacted with your earthly father. Maybe that's because of some assumption that people have given to you about God as a father. I'm not sure. But many of you in here, many of us in here have resolved that this is what God has for us in our brokenness, in our bustedness, in our wake of whatever is around us. The best that we could get is to live in this shame and expect this slavery because what we are doing is living in this misunderstanding that God moves toward those that earn it, but he sends away those that blow it. But the reality of the father is far different. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive. Again, he is lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So what happens? He gets up, he goes to his dad, and his dad sees him, and it says, while he was still a long way off, the father ran 
to the son out of compassion. It says that he felt compassion and he ran to the son. He embraced him and he kissed him. And that didn't even phase the son. In verse 21, he, he launches into the speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And it's like the father doesn't even let him finish, like cuts him off. I'm not even listening to that. He turns to his servant. And he's like, yo, 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 get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes, get the cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one with the marbling, yeah, grill that mug up. We're eating tonight because this guy, he was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found today. We will celebrate he's here and that's a far different picture of what you assume that God would do if you turn toward him what you think that God extends to you is the arms of rejection but the reality from the Bible is what God extends to you is the arms of embrace because he's a far better father than you can imagine a far better father than you can imagine Some of you think that your brokenness is only met by God's disappointment, but the truth of the Bible is that God is far more gracious than you can imagine. He's a far better father than you can imagine. So my invitation to you today, if you identify with the younger son, my invitation to you, and what's more than that, God's invitation to you is turn around. Turn around. Turn toward your father. But he's not the only son in the story. We see the other son in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. So like, look, check this out. Like the son, he's out in the field, doing what the father said to do, being where the father said to be. And he's coming in from the field, and he hears the music like, celebrate good time, right? Like that's happening. And he's, and one of the, he's like, gets one of the servants. He's like, hey, 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 come here, come here, come here. What is going on over there? Look what, the, look what the servant says. Verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. It's almost like he looks at the brother and he's like, you're not gonna believe it, bro. You're not gonna believe it. You know your brother. The, the guy who took, like, you, who took your dad's money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who's like, yeah, he's wilding out like crazy dude. You know that? Yeah. He's back. Can you believe it? He's back. To which we would assume that the older brother would be like, yes, and just run inside and be like, what's up, bro? It's so good to see you. Like, you would expect that moment. And that's not what we see, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. So we see the second misunderstanding of the father here with the older son. And it's gonna sound just like the first misunderstanding, but you need to circle an emphasis. The older son carries the exact same misunderstanding. Is this, the father moves toward those who earn it and he sends away those who blow it. But listen, circle the front side of that because that's where the, old, that's where the older son emphasizes this. The father moves toward those who earn it. His misunderstanding is this. My performance for my father has earned me the right to be pursued by my father. My performance for my father has earned me the right to be pursued by my father. You see that, as we, you see that in verse 28 and following, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out to him to entreat him. But he, that's the older son, answers his father, look, I mean, if, dads, just let's just pause. 
If you're having a conversation, you're like, I'd like to talk to my son and have this loving conversation, and your son begins with this word, look. You're going to be like, I'm sorry, do what? Let's just pause and rewind the tape for four seconds. And what did you just say to me? It's just not, like, it's not a good start. Verse 29, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What is he saying to his dad? I have done all that you have said to do. I've been where you said to be. I have earned your pursuit of me, dad. And so he operates with this understanding. The father moves toward those who earn it and sends away those that blow it. He thinks it's his performance for his father that earns him the right to be pursued by his father. And I just wonder if so many of you are living right there. Convinced. It is your ability to be good for God that makes you worthy to be pursued by God. And you live on that treadmill. And you come to church because you think God is happier with you when you sit in the chair than he would if you sat at home or otherwise. Listen, am I saying, is it important to come to church? You should come to church. Like, I work here. You should come. But I'm saying if you live with this lie that is your performance for God that makes you worthy to be pursued by God, you will find yourself at some point, much like the older son, shaking your fist at God, frustrated. This is not what I bet on. This doesn't sound like Christianity. And hear me, it's not. It's not. It's not. In 2017, February actually of 2017, I came home for lunch, and uh, I was doing something in the kitchen, and I turned around, and my wife was holding pregnancy tests, and she was like, surprise. I was like, wow, I was just going to make the sandwich, but I guess we're going to have a kid. Okay, it's cool. Uh, I don't know what I was eating. But anyway, so she tells me she's pregnant. And so like, yes, this is great. Like, we're so excited about this. We, we can't wait for this kid to be in our home. And uh, we, we had been in this process really shortly into this process of just thinking through, like, hey, we think we want to adopt. We think that that's how God's called us to care for the orphan. Uh, and so we, I just had a conversation. I was just trying to gain some information. And so I met with a friend of mine. Actually, we were just in a car together, and I was talking to him because he had adopted a little girl through the CPS foster system. And so I was just trying to gain some information. Hey, help me understand how did this work, whatever. And, and so I was, just, I was just trying to figure out what to do. I was trying to be responsible. You know, I'm trying to lead this thing. I'm the husband. It's like I have to answer to God for this. So, like, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And so that conversation happened, I don't know, one, two weeks prior to us finding out that we were pregnant. And I, I saw that as a conversation of gaining information. He saw that as a conversation that gave him license. And so here's what happened. I come home for lunch. My wife's behind me. She's like, surprise, I'm pregnant. Ten minutes later, I get a phone call from that guy. He's like, hey, man, there's this little boy. And uh, he needs to be adopted. You guys want to do it? He's on speakerphone. I'm looking at my wife like, you got to be kidding. Two, like right now? And so here's what we resolve. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. We're already swimming. So we agree to do this. And so the way that it works is he was in, he was in foster care, and we had, to, we had to work to become a certified foster family. Some of you have gone through that process. Some of you are those people. And so you know it's not super easy, and it's not super fast. And so we did it really, really quickly. Like in a couple of months, we became certified. And so we had to go to all these classes on the other side of Houston. We had to put all these things in our plugs so that kids wouldn't like, you know, like we had to do that. We had to get a fire extinguisher for our house. We, like all of it. We just had to like get our house and make sure it was like kid-proof. We had to do all these things. 
things so that he could come into our home. And upon him coming into our home, this did not happen. We did not sit his little 19-month bottom across the table and say, welcome. My name is uh, Cade. This is Jenny. We could be your parents as, insofar as you agree to these contract, this contract agreement. We will, we will provide you 18 years of food, water, shelter, clothing even. We will even give you an option for a four-year extension while you go to college. As long as you are kind to us, you do not rebel. You eat your vegetables. You're kind to your brother. You get good grades. No, we didn't do that. What we did was whatever it took to get that little boy into our home. Because my pursuit of him as his father had nothing to do with his performance for us. Nothing. We set our affection on him. And we would do whatever it took. And so let me just borrow some language from Matthew chapter 7. If me being evil know how to give good gifts to my kids, how much more your heavenly father? So for those of you who are convinced that it is your performance for God that makes you worthy to be pursued by God, hear the scriptures today. Say God is far better than you can imagine. He's a far better father than you can imagine. So living with that misunderstanding makes the son angry. It makes him unable to celebrate God's goodness to others. It makes him even indict his father. Look, look down at verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. That's the indictment. You never, you never, you never, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Some of you think that it is your performance for God that makes you worthy of being pursued by God, and what's happened is it's blinded you to your need for God. You're a lot like the Pharisees in the crowd, who Jesus would say to them in Matthew chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. For some of you, you outwardly appear righteous because you are convinced that it's your performance that makes you worthy of pursuit. But inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what is the result? You need to turn toward the Father. Because what's the reality of the father that we see for the younger son and for the older son? Here's the reality of the father that we see from this passage. The father moves toward the sinful and the self-righteous. So if you're in here and you just came in with a wake of baggage behind you and you just limped in today, all kinds of busted up, the father moves towards you. And if you came in here with all kinds of self-righteousness, wearing whatever badges of honor before Jesus that you have to make him, to make him love you, the father moves toward you too. Because both of you are equally in need of him to radically shower you with grace. And he's a far better father. And you can imagine, and you can imagine. But I told you as we launched into this that there's, this is a tale of three sons. To which some of you are like, I'm not sure you've read the Bible, Kate. That's precisely how I reacted. I was talking to a friend about this passage earlier this week and uh, just kind of talking through like, how am I going to do this and getting his help? 
And he was like, hey, so you forgot to talk about the third son. And I responded, maybe how you did it. I was like, huh? Did you? Like, no. You forgot to talk about the third son. Look at verse 22. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The third son is the one telling the story. He's written himself into the story right here in verse 22. He is the servant who comes at the father's bidding to bring the son into the house. He is the servant that the father sends to go and put a robe, a ring, shoes, and slaughter the fattened calf to bring the son into the house. Jesus is the third son. He is the servant sent by the father to do the will of the father, to be the servant to you and I, to bring us into the father's family. He is the one that is sent by the father to put a robe on you, a ring on your fingers, shoes on your feet, but instead of slaughtering a fattened calf, he puts himself on the altar and is torn apart on the cross so that you and I could be welcomed into the father's family because God's a far better father than you can imagine a far better father than you can imagine and so whether you are sinful or self-righteous or somewhere in between I hope that you would look to God and see that he doesn't have he doesn't have arms of rejection for you today He has arms of embrace for you today. He doesn't have chastisement for you today. He has celebration for you today. He has grace for you today. He's a far better father than you can imagine. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, we are really, um, really thankful that you are far better than we can imagine, beyond what we could fathom, God. Whatever picture we carry, you're better than that. And so help us to live in it, walk in it, embrace it. We need it, God. I need it. I live with so many misunderstandings of who you are, but you're, you're better than who I think you are. You're better than who I think you are. And so wherever these folks are today, Meet them there and remind them of how much better you are than they think. Shape us, Scott, to be more like your son. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.